0: because it really ties into what we've been learning in the last month or so about prayer and then also about pride so let me just read for you and Spurgeon is referencing a quote from Matthew chapter 14 verse 30 where Peter says where it says beginning to sink he cried saying Lord save me so you remember the scene here after Jesus feeds the 5,000 sends the disciples out in the boat he comes later walking on the water it's a bad storm. They're scared to death anyway. Then they see this ghost of Jesus walking on the water, and they're even more frightened. And um, Peter, it says, seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. <clears throat> so I'll just read Spurgeon's take on this. It's really encouraging and, and neat. He says, sinking times are praying times with the Lord's servants. Peter neglected prayer at starting upon his adventurous journey, But when he began to sink, his danger made him a suppliant, and his cry, though late, was not too late. In our hours of bodily pain and mental anguish, we find ourselves as naturally driven to prayer as the wreck is driven upon the shore by the waves. The fox hides in its hole for protection, the bird flies to the wood for shelter, and even so, the tried believer hastens to the mercy seat for safety. Heaven's great harbor of refuge is all prayer. Thousands of weather-beaten vessels have found a haven there, and the moment a storm comes on, it is wise for us to make for it with all sail. Short prayers are long enough. That's a good encouragement. Short prayers are long enough. But there were but three words in the petition which Peter gasped out, Lord, save me. But they were sufficient for his purpose. Not length, but strength is desirable. A sense of need is a mighty teacher of brevity. If our prayers had less of the tail feathers of pride, great. If our prayers had less of the tail feathers of pride and more wing, they would be all the better. Verbiage is to devotion as chaff to the wheat. Precious things lie in small compass, and all that is real prayer in many a long address might have been uttered in a petition as short as that of Peter. Peter. Making the point, it's our heart that matters. It's the sincerity of the prayer that matters. Our extremities are the Lord's opportunities. Immediately, a keen sense of danger forces an anxious cry from us. The ear of Jesus hears. And with him, ear and heart go together. And the hand does not linger long. At the last moment, we appeal to our master, but his swift hand makes up for our delays by instant and effectual action. Are we so nearly engulfed by the boisterous waters of affliction? Let us then lift up our souls unto our Savior, and we may rest assured that he will not suffer us to perish. When we can do nothing, Jesus can do all things. Let us enlist his powerful aid upon our side, and all will be well. So I I hope that encourages you. Uh, Spurgeon has a way of saying things that is so profound and and neat, so it encouraged me a lot. Thanks, J.T., for sending that to us. Okay, Uh, I want to review briefly last week, which uh, we read really Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through the end of the chapter, but just by way of review, we were talking about uh, pride and how these verses demonstrated in technicolor, really, the disciples' pride. (laughs) Before we review, uh, Webster's Dictionary has a couple definitions of pride, and I want to be sure we don't uh, miss this because there is a sense where pride is not necessarily used in a negative context, right? You can think of some situations where it means something like the pride a parent has for their children, right? They do well, they love their children, they have pride in their children. So be sure that um, this sort of delight you have in other people that we might call pride isn't necessarily wrong, right? I think it goes without saying. Sometimes you can be proud of an accomplishment... Where you've worked really hard at something and it has worked out well, and you have a sort of sense that's healthy of that was good it's prideful, but even that for the Christian though quickly should turn to say it was the Lord who helped me to do that. It was the Lord who is with me, and I always give thanks to the Lord, but I want to be sure that we don't go too far and cause call something like um an encouraging feeling or an encouragement for others stimulating pride necessarily so just be sure we're not necessarily talking about that kind of pride. I think you know what I mean, right? A feeling of respect you have for someone else could be called pride. The kind of pride we don't like, and I think is taught here in in these texts and in everywhere else in the Scripture, is the fact that you deserve respect from other people. That is one kind of pride we want to be sure we turn from. Um you respect yourself so much that you think you deserve it from others. That's bad. A feeling that you're more important than other people. That's bad. The disciples had that. They thought they were more important than the other guy next to them, and they were constantly jockeying for position. And we'll review that. So don't think you're don't be conceited, and don't think you're more important than other people. The root of pride is self-love, right? Sort of the root, almost, of all the sins is uh, the fact that we put ourselves. Above God, above other people, and above everything else. So that's the root, root of pride. And we saw this in Mark chapter 9. First, you remember, Jesus in verse 31 says, I will suffer and die and raise again. That is what's coming. It is certain to happen. I'll be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill me. Immediately after that, he turns around and asks them, what are you guys arguing about? And they're arguing about which one is going to be the greatest. Um, And after that, he sits down and explains to them this teaching that if you want to be great, the first are going to be last. So if you have this prideful interest in being first and in being great and putting things ahead of all kinds of other people, you're going to end up being last. That's the fate of the prideful person. And then he used this object of a child, and he said, remember, he, he looked at the child and said, um, teaching us that the way we treat this child is the way we treat Jesus, and it's the way we treat God the Father. He says, taking a child, he set him before them, and said, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. So the teaching mainly there was, um, don't be prideful. If you do, you're going to end up being last. You're going to get the opposite of what you're striving for. And a prideful person ultimately is going to reject God. And the manifestation of that on earth here is you reject other Christians. So we talked about this a lot, and I think we're challenged. If you are harsh to another believer, someone that you know is a Christian, but you might take fun of them in your mind or talk about them or gossip or anything like that, if that's what you're doing to another <coughs> Christian, it's like you're doing it to God. So <coughs> challenging for us, right? If you do that, you have to stop and recognize you're rejecting God. It's a manifestation of how we treat the Lord. Um, then we looked at uh, verse 38, where the apostles and the disciples saw another man casting out demons. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he was not following us. And we point out there that pride will promote uh, exclusivity, right? So pr- we can be prideful in our own holy little group. And someone else who's outside of our group, we can look down on them. And that's not right. Jesus tells right here, uh, don't do that. Whoever receives me, excuse me, don't prevent him because um, no one can perform a miracle in my name and soon afterward be spoken evil of. So teaching there, let's not be exclusive. Let's not look at ourselves as better than any other Christian. And then... If you look at verse 41 where the, Jesus says whoever who's not against us is for us verse 40 verse 41 whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ truly I say to you he will not lose his reward so teaching here that people who are nice to Christians will get some reward they may not be saved he's not saying that here but they will get some reward the implication is we ought to be gracious and kind to people who are kind to Christians and um, uh, have an open posture, have an open mind. And I thought of groups like maybe para-church organizations, even something like Catholic Charities or, you know, I'm just brainstorming here, but certain groups that wouldn't be, you might not even consider they're Christians, right? But they're kind to Christians. So doing good things. We absolutely always ought to have a kind disposition toward them. We stand for the truth of the Bible, right? And we would discuss with them areas where, they are in disagreement or don't agree with the word but our posture always ought to be very kind and uh, open to those people Can I ask a
1: question then Yes that
0: being the case how do you uh, bring in, will
1: certainly not lose
0: his reward what would his reward be that You're in verse lose? let's see I don't have a good answer but I I'll just say this they will get a reward Number one, it doesn't say that they'll get the reward of eternal life in Christ by doing kind works, right? It doesn't say that. So all I can say based on this text, and someone else might be able to help, is that they will get a reward, some kind of reward, a blessing. Maybe it's in this life. I don't know. I can't say much more than what the text says. I think the thrust of that, though, really is um, they will get a reward. Don't be harsh to them. But I think you're asking, is the reward necessarily a reward in the afterlife? Is it an eternal reward? I think if that person ended up not being a believer in Christ, they would have eternal punishment, ultimately. That's the teaching of other portions of Scripture. It's very clear. Actually, we'll get to that later in this chapter. Does that answer your question? I can't answer it directly, but they will get a reward, clearly, of some kind. There's other texts in the Bible that talk a lot about pride and we'll spend a few more minutes just rounding this teaching out and you remember a couple chapters earlier in Mark uh, Jesus told us where pride comes from do you remember well it comes from our heart Uh, Mark 7 21 for from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts fornications thefts murders adulteries he lists all these things and one of them is pride so pride comes from our hearts all these things proceed from within and defile the man. There's lots of Proverbs that talk about pr- pride. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 6, there are six things the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination. What's the first one? Haughty eyes. So proud eyes, haughtiness, is the first thing that the Lord hates. It's an abomination to him. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, is sin. Pride goes before destruction. That's sort of, I think, a parallel teaching of what we heard about if you want to be first, you'll be last. So pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So don't love the world. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, pride of life, is not from the Father but it's from the world. That's 1 John chapter 2. And then the last verse I have is Romans twelve sixteen. Be of the same mind toward one another, but do not be haughty or do not be conceited or proudful or high-minded. Don't do any of those things, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So the teaching against pride is is everywhere in the Bible, all over the place. And before I leave this topic and round it out, any questions about that or any other verses that come to your mind that you want to bring out? Before we leave, I I do just want to get back into Mark and look at several passages that reveal, I guess, why I'm spending so much time on this, because I think the flow of these two chapters, continually is pointing to it over and over again. And the high mark of the Apostles' pride, where you see it the most, is immediately after the three times Jesus says, I'm going to die. If you look at, and it's easy to remember, I was telling John this morning, it's Mark 8, verse 31, 9, verse 31, and 10, verse 31. It's it's weird how that worked out, but if you want to remember these three times where Jesus in succession in Mark talks about his going to the cross, it's it's those sections. So Mark 8, 31, that's the first time where Jesus said, began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests. Then Peter says, no, that's not going to be. And then he is chastised, right? So that's the first time you see it. So you have Peter's rebuke immediately after Jesus says that. Peter showing pride. No, my way is the best way. The way I think it's going to work out is the way it's going to be. Jesus, you're not going to die. So he's rebuked. Second time, Mark 9.31, which we looked at last week. He was teaching his disciples, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him. When he's been killed, he'll rise three days later. Then he turns around. What are you guys talking about? Which one's the greatest? All right. So immediately after that, you have the this contrast of Jesus, suffering, servanthood, Humility and the disciples fighting amongst each other pridefully who's going to be the greatest. And then fast forward to chapter 10, verse 31. It's actually verse 32, but 31 is easy to remember. So just go one verse ahead, verse 32. And we'll actually get to this a little bit later, but um, well, we'll get to it now. This, this whole section is really interesting because it ends with what we mentioned before, which is really the the entire theme of this book, which is in verse 45 about the Son of Man being a servant. But, verse 32, I'll read this section here. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will, be, they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him and three days later he'll rise again. Okay? Pretty humbling, hard, difficult thing to hear for the disciples who've been with him for all these years, right? You think they would have humility here and compassion, right? It's the third time they've heard it, Right? So, let's read on. James and John, the sons of thunder, right? Two sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And put yourself in these shoes, right? This, the reason I think the gospel keeps telling us about the disciples' mistake is for us to see ourselves in the disciples, right? Clearly, that's what we can practically take away from this. Uh, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This might be the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. Jesus, make me rich, right? Give me a good life and a happy life and a good career and give me a new car. All these things that we might pray for, anyway, can be tempered with, with these verses. Um, they, uh, and he said to them, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? They said, Grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? We are able, they said. Jesus said to them, The cup I drink, you shall drink. So now he's telling them, Actually, yes, indeed, you are going to suffer, ultimately, as all the disciples did. And uh, you will be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left... This is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Okay, hearing this, and this this sort of doubles down, I think. The ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So what he's saying is, you have the scene, the other ten are indignant that those two had the audacity to go to Jesus and ask to sit at the right hand of the Father. It's interesting, though, you remember in, um, in the transfiguration when the three were, were uh, elevated, I guess, Peter, James, and John, they were special and they saw Jesus. And then there's also another scene earlier when um, Jesus heals, is it Peter? No, no. It's chapter 1 or 2 where Jesus heals the young girl, raises her from the dead, and he brings in the three with him the reaction of the apostles wasn't like this. They didn't seem to mind that Jesus himself had selected three of them to be set aside. It didn't bother them. But here, I get the sense that, um, well, for whatever reason, the other ten are really uh, indignant toward these two. Um, One of the commentators... Go ahead. Maybe it's because they've had enough. Maybe it's because they've had enough, yeah. My other thought was maybe Peter was the one that was... He said, oh, well, wait a minute. I'm part of that group. You know, I, I, Those two can't have it because I'm the third one, and I'm, I'm in on it with them. So he may have been the ringleader for those ten. That's another thought. But they may have had enough indeed. One of the commentators I read had a really neat quote. He says, um, this is R. Alan Cole. He says, quote, talking about the ten who were indignant, that basically they weren't, anyway, that, that, that those two had beat them to the punch kind of. That's how I, how I see it, and that's the way he saw it too. He says, They, the ten, betrayed their spiritual shallowness by being indignant at the spiritual shallowness of the two. So he's basically pointing out, you know, they're as bad. They're spiritually shallow, and they're showing this indignation because those two are shallow. So I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, And Jesus finishes the section with the famous, well, the, the verse, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So you think after all these three uh, uh, teachings of Jesus and that they would get it right but go to the Lord's Supper and we're going to go to luke 22 and then we'll be'll be, this I think puts the it uh, really rounds out the teaching on, on pride and how telling me and telling us how pervasive it is, how deep it is into our hearts and our mind and who we are we are prideful sinful people Luke 22 verse 19 I'll read several verses here probably through verse 34 He taken some bread and given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me again I will die I'm this is my body take it in remembrance of me I'm the sacrifice And the same way he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Same teaching he's told them in Mark three times. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there also arose a dispute among them. As to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. So think right at the Lord's Supper, still they're they're jockeying for position. He said, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not this way with you. So the teaching is the way the world works, with the kings and the rulers and the other people, the world, that's the way they work. This is the opposite of the way it should be with you. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there is an eternal reward for them. They will sit at the table in his kingdom judging the twelve tribes. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied me three times that you know me. So, great demonstration in the Bible of pride of the apostasy the disciples and the same pride that we have and to finish this out I do want to read for you one paragraph from MacArthur's commentary on that because it, it is so good and he's referring to the teaching earlier in chapter 9 he says about pride uh, demonstrated by the disciples he says this was a disturbing and potentially disastrous development their, their pride The way they keep turning away from Jesus into themselves. These men were the first generation of gospel preachers and would be the leaders of the soon-to-be-founded church. With so much riding on them and so much opposition from the hostile world, they needed to be unified and supportive of each other. The danger revealed here is that pride ruins unity by destroying relationships. and You can see that developing among the uh, disciples. Relationships are based on loving sacrifice and service, on selfless deferring to and giving to others. Pride, being self-focused, is indifferent to others. Beyond that, it is ultimately judgmental and critical and therefore divisive. Because of that, pride is the most common destroyer both of relationships and churches. It plagued the Corinthian church, causing Paul to ask... For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Knowing that pride is the wedge Satan uses to split churches and splinter relationships, the Lord stressed to the disciples the crucial necessity of humility. So, that rounds out what I wanted to get through on pride. I think it obviously is a uh, powerful sin we all have. Beware of it and turn from it, and constantly try to follow Jesus, be humble, and be a servant. Any comments on that?
1: Except our entire system is built on better, best, recognition,
0: just Yeah.
1: on and on. So the idea of being able to take the accolade, honoring the Lord, believing it from Him, and mm-hmm. not from
0: It is a challenge. I mean,
1: especially young, young children, because they grow up in the system.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's why I have to train up children in the way to go and yeah. constantly reveal to them the truth. I mean, it's in, literally it's in our DNA because of our sin we got from Adam. But, I mean, figuratively, too, especially in America, the whole, I mean, getting ahead and worldliness and capitalism, even in some ways, it, it's so much in our thinking Uh, To not be humble, to constantly get ahead. Self-esteem. All right. (coughs) Yes. Yes. Great point. Modern psychology and counseling is really based on the idea that I think this is where you're going. Your self-esteem is the most important thing. That's got to be high, high, high. Well, it's a little bit the opposite of what the Christian is to understand, which is to be humble and understand that you're a sinner. But by God's grace, I can do anything. So yeah, the whole self-esteem movement is way uh, over the top. It should be Christ
1: esteem.
0: Yeah, Christ esteem. Yeah, it's yeah, a good word. Mhm. So let's put that in practice in our lives and recognize where we're prideful and selfish in um, in, sport. in sports <laughs> in competition. <laughs> But I do like it when you see these guys that win a game, and they sometimes it's imperfect, but they give glory to God. That's always refreshing to see when young men do that. Sometimes I don't know how sincere they are, but nevertheless, they say it, and it's always nice to 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 hear that. You do see it a lot in uh, sporting events.
1: There's a really good book on that by David Flack called Radical about you know the whole American dream, and we're we're taught that you know American dream's not biblical, but we're taught. that. Uh,
0: hmm Mm-hmm. Radical used a really good reading. Uh, What's the name of the book? Radical. Radical. C.J.
1: Mm-hmm. Mahaney also has a good book on pride. Very,
0: very good. Yep. Great. Thank you. Well, let's round out chapter 9, and I will read for us the last eight verses again, Mark 9
1: 42.
0: <laughs> Just to point out a few other truths that I, that are important so mark 42 and again i'm going to skip verses 44 and 46 for those of you who have that in your bible Uh, whoever causes one of the excuse me whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble it'd be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he'd been cast into the sea if your hand causes you to stumble cut it off it's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire if your foot causes you to stumble cut it off It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So first thing is... It's a very serious thing to cause a Christian to stumble. So serious that Jesus says it would be better for that person to put this heavy millstone. The millstone he's referring to here is the kind of a stone they would use to grind wheat. And there, I guess, were different ways of grinding wheat. But when you ground a lot of wheat, you had a huge, I don't know how big it was, probably bigger than this. So big they had to have a donkey drag it. A human couldn't move it. That's what the, the literal word here refers to, that sort of the donkey millstone it's this big huge millstone so he's basically saying better to put that thing and drown to death than to cause someone else to sin so the idea here is we need to take this very very seriously and then ask ourselves a few questions and again I'm taking from MacArthur here because it's so good he lists four ways that um, we could cause another Christian to sin and I want to go through some of these The first way is a a direct temptation. You directly entice another believer to sin. So think about that. Why would a Christian do that? Why would a Christian directly entice another Christian to sin? Justify your own sin. That's the first thing that came to my mind. To just justify it and say, well... If we won't do it, it's not so bad. It helps the Christian see better. But if you do that, better for you to drown with a millstone around your neck. So do not entice another Christian to sin. Uh, sexual sin in people who aren't married. i thought of that. So that would be a situation the same way where on the one hand you want to share in it so it's okay and all is well, but um, also selfish motive. You're putting yourself so far above your concern for that other person that it doesn't matter. You're going to entice them to sin. So, a direct temptation or enticing someone is one way we can um, sin and cause another person to sin. And that is really, really severely dangerous, according to this verse. The second way is indirect temptation. And along these lines, I think of, you know, in Ephesians 6, 4, it says, don't provoke your children to anger. So don't do that. Don't uh, elevate situations where you will provoke someone to anger. You'll provoke them to argue with you or to, to cause to to sin. So that's that would be like an indirect temptation. Don't promote opportunities where other people could sin. I think of uh, Romans 14, you know, if... Uh, The drinking, okay, drinking alcohol. So if it's not a sin, it's not a sin to drink a glass of wine. I think I can say that most of us agree with that, right? It's not. It is a sin to get drunk. But if you have a glass of wine on your Thanksgiving meal and there's someone who has a problem with alcohol or who might might be spiritually immature and see that as something that's a flaw in your character, you shouldn't do it. That might be an example of sort of an indirect temptation. So be alert to the needs of people around you and don't provide opportunities where they could think possibly of sinning or think inappropriately. I think of things like going to movies. Some of us can go to a movie that's a contemporary film and not feel like that's a sinful thing for me to do. I, I get it. There's violence and stuff, but it doesn't really seem to affect me. But other people can so be careful of the things you, you watch, the things you do with other Christians. I'm not getting many nods out there. Is this resonating with you? Do you agree or disagree? I think there's some things we do in life that uh, we have to be aware that it's not indirectly tempting another believer. I think of other things, too, like, um, like these violent video games. I I really don't like those at all. I don't have children, but if I did, they wouldn't be playing those things. So I, I don't know if So that's just a thought of mine that I put out there. I know a lot of people in this church play those, but think about it. They they're not wholesome and they're not helpful and they might be tempting a young mind to just think in a way that's too violent. It's just not right to be brain's exploding and, you know, it's just, so that's an example I thought of that practically I want to challenge people here to consider, uh, violent video games, violent movies, sexually explicit movies, obviously, and uh, other things you do throughout the day that may tempt someone to sin.
1: Uh-huh. What you are saying, uh-huh. what you are doing. I mean, extremely young. And so that being the case, their minds are simply sponges. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I mean everything yep. in that they are saying oh, this is the way I am to be brought this is the way I am to act say I, I hear so many I've heard at grocery stores at checkouts that the crazy things that the checkout person will say about a child that came in and blurted out something mm-hmm. that mom and dad really
0: didn't want them to say Yep. But where did they learn? That?
1: Where did they Yeah,
0: do? exactly. They that? Yes, that, that sort of, thank you. That leads into the next, you know, set a good example. Always, that's another, the third point of how we can uh, cause people to stumble is we're just setting a bad example over and over again with anger or certain attitudes of disrespect, being irreverent, being rebellious, being all these things that are not godly characters. When we demonstrate that, Other people see it, especially young people or immature Christians, they will emulate it. So that's a way we can indirectly cause someone to be tempted to sin. And then the fourth way is interesting. I wouldn't have thought of it, but it's great. When we fail to stimulate or encourage others, right? So if someone does things and they're working hard and... You know, we ought to be encouraging them and stimulating them, lest they get discouraged, right? So, if when we fail to encourage other people, that's a way that we're not encouraging them on to like love and good deeds, that would be a way maybe that um, we could cause someone to stumble. So, I, I think that's important to remember. We should always be encouraging, overly so, especially to believers. So, don't entice people. Don't set a bad example. Don't do things that might have the hint of sin around the immature believer. Beware of the things you say and the things you do and always set a good example. Because if you don't, if you cause a little one to stumble, it's not good. Jesus uses a pretty strong description here of what is good for you, to be drowned with a millstone around your neck. Take it seriously. Okay. Any questions about that? Yes? I think there's one thing that um, is so easy for us to do. We're doing a Bible study right now, and it's on the tongue. Oh, yeah.
1: as well. And I always think about that gosh, you know, I caught myself saying something and have to quickly go, Oh, not only am I sinning, but I am also causing this brother or sister
0: to sin. And such e just anything. I mean just um just very simple things and our tongue is so wicked that we'll just say something. Yeah. And then we're in it deep. Great point. Yeah, I mean, the tongue is a world of evil, right? It, it is. We all know that. And It's so easy to rapidly escalate something and say things you shouldn't say with an attitude you shouldn't have. Yeah, so beware. bridle, bridle the tongue. Okay, the next few verses, Jesus talks about basically uh, telling us that sin is very serious. It's so serious that it would be better to cut off your hand pluck out your eye, cut off your foot, then to sin. We understand that parable, right, pretty clearly. And, and just so you know, I think the hand implies things you do. If there are things you do, like with your hands, that are causing you to sin, stop doing them. And we can apply some of the same things we have talked about just a few minutes ago. If there are things you do that's causing you to sin, stop it. Cut it off, stop it. If there are places you go, I think the feet implies that, if you're walking, if there are places you go that are causing you to sin, stop going there. Pretty simple. If there are things you see causing you to sin, stop looking at them. And I think of videos, pornography, uh, TV shows, <laughs> things you look at that are causing you to sin, stop it. Could we not refer to that as spiritual
1: surgery?
0: Yeah, I've heard that phrase. Do the spiritual surgery. Cut out those things that are causing you to stumble into sin. Not a partial surgery. And this is radical. He's saying, cut off your whole arm. So we get the point. Hendricks says, says, don't dilly-dally. And he also says, shadow boxing will never do. So do the real thing. Fight the real fight. Do it. Don't, Don't just dabble around the edges. Do the hard thing and cut off your arm if it's causing you to sin. Spiritually perform the surgery. We know he's talking in serious terms here, too, because... He's using, in verse 43, and he uses it again in 48, talks about uh, into hell the unquenchable fire. So this, he's not mincing words. Jesus himself is talking about you'll, you'll go to hell, this unquenchable fire. The word for hell is a serious word for hell. This is a word for eternal hell, eternal punishment, eternal damnation for those people. Um, so don't sin because... If you do, you will go to this, (coughs) excuse me, this uh, Genna, I think is how it's pronounced. Um, Very, very serious. Abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. That's what Peter says. I urge you, as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts. The Beatitudes, Jesus talks about, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. Right, Romans talks about how we're under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Don't sin. Don't live according to your flesh. If you do that, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body, maybe spiritual surgery, by the Spirit, you're putting to death these deeds of the body, you'll live. So, uh, we have... That teaching. Okay, so the question for us, what areas of life is a Christian impure? We've covered that, I think. What, the question for you, what activities are you to stop doing? Think this through. What places should you stop visiting? What things should you stop watching? So ask yourself those questions, and then probably what may have instantly come to your mind is probably the first thing you ought to cut out. One of those things, cut it out so we're not tempted to sin. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Who's able to kill the soul? Can the devil kill your soul? Right. The guy who created it can kill your soul. He's talking about the Lord God. It says, but rather fear him, God, who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And He uses that same word there, Gehenna, hell. I don't know if you know about Gehenna and how that word came about. But it's it's a transliteration is the right. But basically, it's it's the Hebrew word it was used back in um, Chronicles and I think in Kings referring to a valley, Ben Ben Hinnon, and it's translated ultimately into Gehenna. Do you know what happened at Ben Hinnon? I'll read for you because it's not pleasant. Uh, this is in uh, Ahaz's reign. He was one of the bad kings in the south. Second Chronicles twenty eight. Ahaz was 20 when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. This is where the word comes from, is this valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he burned his sons in fire. So this is the area that is referred to by Jesus as hell. It is a valley... It is death. It's so evil that this king would burn and kill his own, sacrifice his own children, basically. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. And then Manasseh was another king a little bit later. He was 12 when he became king. He reigned 55 years. He built the high places. He did the abominations. He did all these things. And it says in Second Chronicles 33, Verse 5, he built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. He practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So that's where we get this word from, that valley, that evil, terrible place. Okay, Uh, Mark 9.49 is an interesting verse. All the commentators said, kind of scratching their heads, you know, this is one of the most difficult verses for us to interpret. Not exactly sure what this combination of salt and fire (coughs) refers to, so there's a lot of opinions. I'll just go through a couple of them. Uh, MacArthur said, it's commonly acknowledged to be one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to interpret, and varied views have been given to it. First of all, when he says everyone be salted with fire, it's not clear whether he's talking about the disciples, all people in the world, all Christians. It's just not clear. Different people have come to different conclusions. But the combination of salt and fire is unique. It's only noted a few times in the Bible. One place is in, um, is in Leviticus, where um, it's chapter two, verse thirteen, where. Moses is instructed to give a grain offering and he said it's to be offered with salt with all your offerings. You shall offer with salt. So the idea here there was an offering with fire and it's offered with salt. So pointing I think and the commentators say basically to um, an enduring as salt is a preservative so it's like an enduring eternal offering sacrifice. So that's probably what it's symbolizing an enduring covenant with that salt representing that and so he may be saying this is a pointing to the sacrificial character of your sacrifice of discipleship the enduring nature of your sacrifice it's forever right you are salted with fire so he may be saying to the disciples um, you're going to be offered the sacrifice and it's going to endure forever the fire is purifying the fire will test our work a fiery trial is coming to you, disciples. Maybe what he's saying. Um, the other interpretation is, is it's referring to just a judgment. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah is what, one thing I think of, where she's turned into a pillar of salt as, as the area is um, burnt to the ground, brimstone. So referring to, to an idea of judgment. And resonating with that is Romans 12.1. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, just spiritual service of worship. Um, so I'm not clear what that means, but I think we get the uh, kind of the idea. Preservation nature and a sacrificial nature, purifying. Salt is good? Yes, salt is good as a preservative and it's good as a seasoning, right? Salt doesn't really lose its flavor. Salt doesn't decompose very well. What he's referring to here is back in those times when they collect salt, sometimes it was contaminated with things. Gypsum is one thing they would use. So basically they would think they're collecting pure salt, but it, was, it really wasn't pure salt, and that over time would lose its, its um, flavor. So the salt would appear to become, what appears to be salt would become unsalty, and you can't make it salty again. So the teaching to the disciples is, I think, pretty clear. You know, stay holy, stay salty, remain holy, maintain your character, and always be like salt. Be at peace with one another. A verse that resonates with that? Colossians 4.6, Let your speech always be with grace. This talks about our tongue. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Uh, And he ends this chapter with a practical instruction um, to the disciples, be at peace. He rounds this all out, recognizing their pride. He says, Guys, be at peace with each other. Stop this jockeying for position. Consider all these things I've told you. Be sacrificial in your uh, thinking. Be humble. Put others ahead of you. Put me ahead of you. Always put yourself lower. Stop striving to be number one. All right. Any questions about Mark chapter 9? We spent about a month in it. I think it's a great uh, teaching, especially about the pride. It's really important. Jesus wants us to know about our own pride. Any thoughts?
1: I'm just thinking that one way salt becomes not salty is when it's combined with something else. Right. So if it has a reaction with something else, it loses that saltiness. So Mm -hmm. when we bring other things into our lives, or when people combine the Christian doctrines with other doctrines that are
0: false, Yes. I think so. Don't bring a gypsum into your salt. So she's saying, if you didn't hear, uh, salt becomes unsalty when you combine it with something else. So don't combine false teachings with something else. Maybe even an application. Don't be careful the way you interact with the world and how much you combine the world's activities or thoughts into your thinking. Yeah, stay salty. Good. Bob, did you...
1: In his people. One, we should remember God's faithfulness just as salt when used with a sacrifice we call God's covenant with his people in Leviticus 2.13. Uh-huh. Two, we should make a difference in the world, uh, in the flavor Just as salt preserves food from decay, when we lose his desire to salt the earth with the love and message (coughs) of God, we become useless to him.
0: Yeah, very good.
1: So, in enhancement, I think the way we, uh, when we sit down to a table or when we prepare a meal, the purpose of the salt is to enhance it. Mm hmm.
0: Yep, very good, thank you. What commentary is that?
1: It's, uh, NIV version and
0: yeah, that's very good, thank you. Anything else?